Person-centered planning is all about what a person can do. Person-centered is not just having the person in the center of what you want to do for them. They're directing it. And even if they can't speak, they can tell you what they want. One of the great things about person-centered planning is that the person is actually in charge of their life. What impressed me about it was just how it asked questions about every single thing in daily life. Do I get to choose when I get up in the morning? Can I choose my place of employment enough? Can I choose what I want to wear? Can I choose who I want to hang out with? Just those, And just those things you don't think about very much until they come to you, and it's just... Wow, we really covered the ground. When you learn about person-centered planning, it's it's so important because everyone has different needs, and that couldn't be more true, especially in the disability community. And person-centered planning is so um, important and effective because it takes each individual and says, hey, this is who I am, this is what I care about, this is what I need to be my best self, this is how you can support me and help advocate for me. Um, you know, if, if people are in a situation where maybe they're not able to do that for themselves. From Hammond, Louisiana, this is Home Care America, your weekly dose of news and insights from the wonderful world of home care, waiver providers, and ICF IDD operators. It's brought to you by Cura OS, the all-in-one software solution that was forged from 30 years of experience in this industry. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to new listeners out there. All over the world, person-centered planning and the caregiving that it enables is transforming lives in powerful ways. At its essence, the fundamentals are simple, but in practice it can be difficult to achieve, particularly when the caregiver is distracted by all the regulatory and compliance concerns that go into running a home care business. At Cura OS, person-centered planning and care is the lodestar, the guiding light that leads all of our software solutions, all of these efficiencies that empower you as a home care provider. These efficiencies enable you to take your mind off those concerns and put it where it belongs, on the client, on the caregiving. Cura OS puts the care back into care. This week on the podcast, Dr. Laura Bracken is back with James and Bridget of Cura OS, Dr. Bracken is one of the leading voices in Louisiana on person-centered planning. She's going to discuss some personal stories, some anecdotes from her long career that really illustrate the power of person-centered planning. So let's rejoin James, Bridget, and Dr. Laura Bracken. How have you seen person-centered planning actually, like, really change somebody's life? Oh, I can give you the best example that's just so amazing that that. A, a, a mom recently shared with me. There was a, a, a provider agency recently did some focus groups with board members and some of the individuals they support and their family members and told them that they wanted to become a more person-centered organization and kind of transform how they're doing things. And one of the questions that they asked these in these focus groups what to the family members, they said, what are some of the hopes and dreams that you have for your family members with a dis- family member with a disability? And one of the moms said, I've never been asked that question by anybody. I've never stopped to have hopes and dreams because I've always been so focused on caring for her and providing what she needed. And it reminds me of something that you said not too long ago, Bridget, is you used the term that we've made people prisoners of safety. And and I thought that was just, it gave me 
such a visual when you said it. It really made me visualize that, yes, for so long, the service system and even family members, even people with good intentions that work in, in this field, they love and care about the people that they work with. And they are so focused on health and safety, but then they've made them prisoners by not letting them have a life experience risk. Yes. Julie, Julie was in a meeting with me, Julie Hagen, and she used the term dignity of risk. And it just, it was like, yes, you know, people, life is risky. Mm-hmm. And people with disabilities want to enjoy that as well. Because it's thrilling and exciting. And I'm not saying, you know, just let somebody cross a street by themselves. I mean, I'm not talking about that. But, you know, like, whatever it may be for that person. I don't know. But not to just solely make sure that we're keeping people safe. And that's the most important thing. And that became the most important thing. Instead of seeing what do they want out of life. We just want to make sure they're safe. I have a great example for that one. Don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> Don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. How'd you like to be told that your whole life? Yeah. Just every day, every time you try to do anything, if you have muscular dystrophy and you're confined to a wheelchair and every time you try to do something, everybody is so concerned about you're going to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And as all you want to do is maybe hurt yourself a little bit. So it's okay if I hit my foot on the side of the door. It's not going to kill me. And we don't need to be overly concerned about every single little aspect of my personal safety. And I think we all have seen cases where this is prevalent in the care of an individual. Yes. So let me share with you this story, and then we're going to get back to the mom. Mm-hmm. So let me share with you this story. So a provider had approached me because they had a young man that they were supporting. And the young man was from the New Orleans area and loved to go into the bars on Bourbon Street, <laughs> of course, to listen to the jazz music. Had nothing to do with any of the women that might be there or whatever else. Love the jazz music. But what, ha- what happened is that this young man would meet other people who were friendly to him and he would buy them drinks because he thought they were friend, his friends. Sure. And they may have been, I, I don't know. But he would spend all of his money and he would come home with nothing. And so the provider's instinct is, is was, those people are not his friends. They're taking advantage of him. He's losing all of his money because they're, he's buying them drinks and things like that. And they really cared for him. But their good instinct was, he can't go to those bars. Because he's going to be taken advantage of. And so they actually came to me and they said, well, we have to limit this because they're taking advantage of him. And so it goes back to person-centered and what's important. Is it what's important to versus what's important for? And so in, in talking with her, I asked her, I said, what are some things that are important to him? Tell me what's important to him that she knew of. Well, he did going, he lived on it in his own apartment mm-hmm. and he liked living in his own apartment. He had friends that he would go uh, and meet once a week, and they would go to McDonald's. I can't remember exactly where it was. But they would go and meet and have lunch or eat, get together and eat. And he liked doing that. And then he also liked playing video games, and so he liked to be able to purchase the video games. And so those are things that are important to him. So what I 
we worked on is coming up with a plan for them to recognize what was important to him and realize that, that talk to him. Do you want to continue to live here? Do you want to continue to be able to go to and go eat with your friends? How often do you want to do that? How often do you want to be able to buy video games? And what he needed was support in determining what was important to him and how he wanted to use his money. That's right. And so you say when you go to the bar and listen to the jazz music, yes. you bring cash only. Yes. And you say, I have $20 because that's within my budget. And when my $20 is done, I either decide to give up the lunch next week and spend another 20 or I say, I'm finished. Yeah. Exactly. And so think about it. You might have a friend that's a moocher, and then every time you go out to eat, they make you want to pay, and yes, they'll pay. And my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about it is that, you know, that's your choice. I've no. come home from the bar broke. <laughs> <laughs> and that's your choice. And hopefully you can pay your bills. Yeah. And that's if right. you can't, then you need to reevaluate your exactly. spending your money, too. Right. So it really isn't that you can't, you should be permitted prohibited from going to the bar if you want to. That's right. And you should not be prohibited from spending however much money you want to spend. That's right. That's right. But if you don't want to suffer the negative consequences of that, and if you are not, don't have enough money to pay your bills, then let's work together and figure out how do you want to spend your money. If at the end of the day he wants to spend all of his money on going to bars, that is still his choice. That's but right. he needs to know that it means he won't have money for the McDonald's. He won't have the money for the for buying the games, and he may not be able to have the money to pay the light bills, so then he can't play the games. But find out what is important to him, and then it's his decision as to how he wants to spend his money. And at least he knows what will happen if he doesn't. And that's what partly where dignity risk comes into play. You might have to have a roommate. You might have to move somewhere else that's cheaper. That's right. That can be his choice. And so what they did is they then came up with a plan. Mm-hmm. where he decided how much he wanted to spend. And he, he got to do it, spend it however he wanted to. That's right. But he decided how much he was willing to spend in that situation. And then they also came up with plans and backup plans for what happens if, how are you going to get home? What happened to transportation? What happens if you know that? And so they worked with him to create an environment where he could enjoy the same thing. What other 20, I don't remember how old exactly it was. What other 24 year old? Wants to go to those bars and, and everyone listen to the jazz music. <laughs> everyone. And so why should he not be allowed to? And take the risk of spending all of their money on their friends and have to get home and do all yeah. of the things that you just outlined. It's okay for him to go through those experiences in a way that is managed. It's it's okay. Yes. It's okay. We don't have to overprotect. But the natural instinct was... To say, don't go there anymore. But it was out of caring for him. Of course. They truly cared for him. But that was the natural instinct. That's right. That's a great story. Let me go back to this other story because it really isn't amazing. And me telling that I probably couldn't do justice. But this mom said, no one, this mom said, when asked the question, what are the hopes and dreams for your daughter? Her response was, and no one's ever asked me that question. I've never stopped to think about it. What this agency decided to do was to do a, a pilot of using some person-centered tools that are through University of Missouri, Kansas City, called Charting the Life Course, and these are the life course tools. That you're an ambassador of? Yes. Is that, okay. Yes. And so the mom went through and learned how to use these tools. And now her daughter 
is 13 years old. And I did ask permission from, it was just so amazing. I did ask permission from this mom to use, to, to share her story. And I'm going to pause for a sec because I'm going to pull it up and, and make sure I can give it justice. So this mom participated in the training through Trenton Life Course. And her daughter, who was 13 years old, the mom had said that she always envisioned that she would be taking care of her daughter for the rest of her life. And she, after going through the training, she sent a text to the executive director of this agency. And the executive director was just so excited. She shared it with me. And I, like I said, she didn't give me permission to tell her story. And she said, through the training, there was a example, what's for dinner, problem solving sheet. And she said, since that specific training, her daughter has learned how to eat a balanced diet how to meal plan and has placed an online grocery order herself and that her response after placing it was filled with excitement because she felt like a grown up. She said that another example of what happened was that her daughter want, indicated that she wanted to learn how to go snorkeling. They were going to be going on a trip and they were looking at things to do and, and snorkeling was an option. Her daughter saw it and she said that she wanted to do this. And she said, in life, we went from trying to be on a swim team at the YMCA and then getting kicked off of the team and asked not to come back to the YMCA because her daughter, they said her daughter was putting herself at risk with the amount of anxiety she had in the water. Even though she wanted to do it, they didn't want, it, it, it wasn't working. And she said that by utilizing the 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 tools and focusing on the person's interests and helping build a life for them the way that they want to build that life and that you're doing it not for them, but with them in that planning process. So what she said is she utilized her daughter's desire to want to snorkel as an incentive to try to make things happen. And so they decided to take a snorkeling lesson together. And, and mom, the mom said, I couldn't be the one to teach her because I didn't know how to do it myself. And my daughter couldn't ask or rely on me to do it, as she's always dependent on me to do as her main caregiver. She learned by someone else at the same time that I learned how to snorkel myself. She got to see me on her level. I was instructed that I couldn't help her, not even to help her fix her mask or her hair to prevent her from frustration or prevent her from having a meltdown. I was told if she wanted it bad enough to do this, that she needed to be willing to do it independently. This is the mom talking. It was hard, but I did my part, and I concentrated on learning myself, and I handed control over to a stranger. And she says, remember, this is not a normal Medicaid waiver activity or service, but something very specific to her living the life that she wanted to live. By the end of the two-hour lesson, we were both independent snorkelers. We held hands snorkeling together as equals and did two laps around the pool. And for the very first time, I was not living for her, but living life with her. She said, this really goes even beyond that. Does anyone even realize that what she learned and experienced was the impossible skill that we couldn't teach or get her to do until that moment? As a young adult who has had an extremely high level of anxiety, to be able to get her body to relax enough to float in the water is unbelievable. She did it beyond words or expectations. 
She gained confidence and pride by conquering her biggest fears, and I was experiencing it with her and didn't do it for her. And now we will use that skill of body relaxation in so many life lessons that would be countless. One two-hour lesson that was her own choice, her own life design, gave her the opportunity to conquer the world, and that is what this can do. And she said, I will add that it was not my desire at age 53 to want to learn how to snorkel, but living life with her has given me the opportunity to dream bigger, not only for her, but for me as well. It started with just a spark of interest that she showed and us as parents being willing to hear it and understand it and try to make it happen. And she said, cut that little part right there. I think that really ends it there. But one of the... But one of the interesting things that I've heard from this mom after she said this text is that for eight years, they had her in behavior therapy to try and deal with her anxiety. And that what they couldn't do in eight years by focusing on what was important to her, that they were able to accomplish that in two hours. And that's a skill that's so transferable to so many other parts of her life. And that's a good example of why person-centered planning, and then persons in their practices that are where the individual is supported to live the life that they choose to live and is absolutely so important. So important. You talked you talked about charting the life course, and, and sometimes people will ask me, they'll say, okay, there's the person-centered thinking training, and then there's charting the life course, and then there's the, these path plans. So what is the what are the right person-centered thinking tools that people should use to to help develop a person-centered plan? And in terms of what goes into the plan that's developed at the state level, it can vary from person to person. So though that needs to be person-centered as well. There are some tools that are out there that will work for one person to help them share what's important to them so that you can capture that information. But then I kind of want to bring this full circle because having it down on paper doesn't matter if you can't then get that information down to the level of the direct support professional if they're receiving you know, mm-hmm. services where and they have support staff that are supporting them. And so that's where that taking that information and getting it down to the level of the DSP where, where providers can actually operationalize this plan is so important. And then I want to go back to something important that you said, James, is is that what's important to this 13-year-old today could literally change tomorrow. I think about some of the things that I was interested in when I was 13 and 14. I don't know about you. Are you doing any of the same things you were doing at 13 or 14? No, no. People grow and change. They experience things. They might decide they like things. One day they don't like Another, or you have to try things out to see if it's a fit. Their bands, the music they like changes. Yes. Apparently not. The food they like. Not if it's Elvis. Yeah. (laughs) Everything everything (laughs) changes. Yes. You know, everything changes for everybody. And and so that's the important piece is that, yes, it's good to have a great person-centered plan. And then that provider needs to take that information and see what do we need to do as a at our level, and what do our direct support professionals need to do to make this a reality? But in addition to that, it is about the ongoing learning that happens day to day that uh, that needs to be captured and needs to be documented so that it can be shared with other people that are supporting the individual to live the life that they choose to live. And so that's 
huge. I can see that as a challenge. Laura, I tell you, it's um, that story that you shared it really touches me when you shared that story. And uh, if we can give that same level of joy to our clients and to the clients across the country and the people that we serve, well, then that will be an amazing day mm-hmm. because that was just one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Thank you for sharing that story. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Home Care America. Next week on the podcast, Caroline Meehan of the Community Provider Association will return to have a conversation with James and Bridget about things happening at the legislative level that affect you as a home care provider. So be sure to join us again. I know it's a tough, intense situation in the world right now. Make sure you take some time to put care into yourself, your friends and family. We'll see you again next week.